0: Welcome back to Money Mile. I'm your host, Justin Waller, and I'm happy you're here. Money Mile is where we help active, time-crunched people increase confidence in their finances while increasing their fitness. We focus our education toward helping active people looking forward to an active and phased financial independence and who are ultimately interested in leaving a meaningful legacy. We package our financial education into roughly mile-sized educational bits for approximately one mile on your long, steady run, and we strive to make each episode valuable for you. This is the best financial education podcast designed for triathletes and runners. In our last episode, we talked with Julie Dunkel about adapting through adversity. We hope that conversation was valuable and entertaining for you. In today's episode, we are going to finish up the risk management segment of our financial training plan at the long course level. This is similar to the contingency planning aspect of a triathlon training plan, and by training and putting in the work, you learn a lot about what you need to do when things don't go according to plan. Back in episode 32, we looked at ways to improve your risk management strategy by better understanding if you can impact change about certain risks. In this episode, we are going to dissect a relatively complex insurance strategy that is popular in some circles. There are risks in the world. You can choose to retain the risk, share the risk, or transfer the risk, and you get to decide. By retaining the risk, you are maintaining 100% of the risk of something happening and the financial impacts of that. If you choose to share the risk, you are likely using some degree of insurance that allows you to maintain part of that risk, but also share the risk with an insurance company. And by transferring the risk, you are really leaning on that insurance company as a primary resource if that event does happen. But ultimately, you get to decide how you want to handle that. One of the risks that we all face is the risk of overinsurance. And the ultimate risk there is opportunity cost, and that's what you're losing out on. Each dollar you spend on insurance is a dollar you can't invest for your future or use to create memories with your family. The strategy that we're going to be dissecting today is one that's referred to as bank on yourself or also referred to as infinite banking. There is a great sales pitch here, and we are going to break apart that strategy and understand why it doesn't really work for most folks. It comes in a couple of different flavors, but the primary aspects of the pitch that you should not have to pay taxes to the man as in the federal government is holding you down and therefore you should not put money in your retirement plan at work your 401k or 457 and you should be putting money into this strategy instead so you don't have to pay the taxes the second piece of that is often that you'll be using your own money so you put your money aside and then you're able to get your hands on it again should you need it in the future so Anytime you are thinking of an investment, you can think of it kind of like a bucket. You put money into that bucket, and hopefully it grows at a certain rate. And then you plan on taking the money out of that bucket at some point down the road. Problem number one. These strategies will most universally use some degree of insurance, life insurance in particular. Do you need life insurance? And if you do, then do you have the right size death benefit? So if you need $100,000 worth of insurance, that's how much you should have, you should not buy a million-dollar life insurance policy just so you can try to do something fancy with it. The incremental costs of insurance become extremely expensive at that point. So. The next piece is the premium expense charge that's based on the amount of money you put into the contract. So this is money that, as you, if you think of it as money that you're putting into the contract itself, they will charge you a sales charge or a premium expense charge for the money going in. So you put in $100 and you lose $4 to the premium expense charge. So when we think about this life insurance as a bucket in our analogy, the cost of insurance and the premium expenses are like holes that someone puts in the bottom of your bucket. Ultimately, my view on life insurance is that you should buy the right amount of term insurance for what you need and invest the difference. We can talk more about that at a different time. Problem number two is tax-free growth. Now, in the pitch, they often present this as a strategy so you don't have to have the IRS holding you down uh, or ha- forcing you to pay taxes. Therefore, you want to use this type of insurance strategy as an alternative to paying taxes. There are a couple of reasons that this falls apart, but ultimately, if I could choose to get a tax-free 2 or 3% or a taxable 8 to 10%, I would probably take the latter, but that leads us to our next problem. This is the growth of the investments. Now, these different types of strategies have been pitched with different types of insurance policies over the years, one of which is a whole life policy, uh, which typically the returns on that are somewhere between 2 to 3%, depending upon the insurance company that you're dealing with. Universal life, which is the next area, which is somewhere between 4 to 6%, and then variable universal life, which is primarily based on the portfolio of investments that you choose inside of the contract itself. So if you are, again, comparing a tax-free two to 3% rate of return versus a taxable eight to 10% rate of return, I would choose the larger return and pay some taxes and that's okay, I would rather pay the taxes based on a transparent system within the infrastructure for taxes as opposed to pay an insurance company that is ultimately out just for their own profit motive. The fourth problem with this is the embedded investment cost if you are using an investment portfolio inside of an insurance policy you are going to pay more for that portfolio than if you were to buy that portfolio outside of an insurance contract that's just the way these things work the investments inside of an insurance contract are going to look a whole lot like the investments outside so you might have ABC companies investment in there And it's going to look a whole lot like the ABC company investment you have somewhere else. The names are going to be very similar. If you look very closely at the portfolio illustrations, you will likely see a small difference between ABC company investment outside of the insurance company contract and the ABC investment inside of the contract. Inside the contract, these are technically referred to as subaccounts. Now, subaccounts are not uh, exchange-traded funds or index funds or anything like that. Typically, uh, they are sub-accounts of the insurance company's portfolio. That essentially means that in between you and the investment company, there is this insurance company standing in as middleman and essentially tacking on additional fees. So if you're dealing with an actively managed portfolio inside of an insurance contract, your expenses are likely going to be significantly higher. Now, variable portfolio options just have higher costs in general. That's most of the time how they work. I'm sure there are exceptions out there based on different distribution arrangements and that sort of thing. But by and large, you're going to pay more for an investment inside of a variable life insurance policy or any sort of insurance contract than you would outside of that. In a well-designed portfolio, you can dial up your risk level to compensate for the slightly higher expenses. So you get a slightly higher return over time for taking on a little bit more risk. You just have to be comfortable with taking on that risk so you can outpace those internal expenses. I'm not recommending specific investments here. I'm just using two examples to illustrate a point. The first is the Vanguard 500 Index Fund, that is an exchange-traded fund, or ETF. The ticker symbol for this one is VOO. This particular investment charges three basis points as its annual internal operating expense. Now, I know that basis points are complex and, and can be confusing. For the sake of this example, Uh, I run the numbers on it. So, for every $1,000 invested in that Vanguard portfolio, they charge 30 cents per year. Okay. As an alternative in one of these variable contracts, what you might find is something like a Fidelity Contra variable portfolio. And I don't want to give you the wrong idea. I'm a big fan of Fidelity and, and a lot of the work that they do there. Just as it's structured within this type of portfolio, It charges 60 basis points, so six zero basis points. So for every $1,000 invested in that particular portfolio, they charge $6 per year. So we've just gone from a 30 cents per year charge to $6 per year. Now, when long term growth is the goal here, compounding returns is your friend. And so we wanna be mindful of those additional expenses. I will be the first to tell you that nothing is free. So if it is valuable to you, you should pay for it. Part of what bothers me about this is that these incremental costs are not explained or they are explained as part of a 100-page document filled with 10-point font and disclaimers on top of disclaimers. I recommend low-cost baskets of primarily stocks like index funds or passively managed exchange-traded funds. I think for most folks, they'll end up being in a much better situation one investment to another. The fifth problem with this particular strategy or these strategies are the surrender charges. Many of these policies have significant surrender charges. If you change your mind in five years and try to stop the policy, you are going to lose a lot of money. So why do they have surrender charges? They have surrender charges because they pay the people selling these products big commissions to sell them. Where do the commissions come from? Your initial deposits. If you put $10,000 into a policy like this and then change your mind, the company can't give you your $10,000 back because they likely paid a lot of that to an insurance salesperson in the form of a commission. There are lots of different compensation methods out there and there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with a commission. You just need to be clear about what that is and understand what that person's motivation is. Now, there is another facet of this argument that is made that is that this type of strategy was used by multimillionaires in the past. There is another facet of this conversation that is interesting. And they will often argue that this type of strategy was used by multimillionaires in the past. So it should be okay for you to use, right? Well, it is true that permanent insurance was used in the past by multimillionaires and is still today. But back in the day, famous people bought insurance policies as a mechanism to replace wealth that was lost due to estate taxes we discussed in the last purely educational episode about estate planning, that the estate tax currently is based off of the excess of your estate above $12.9 million. So if you were concerned about some of the value of your estate, the excess of $12.9 million being lost to estate taxes, you could certainly consider a life insurance policy as a mechanism to offset those estate taxes. This is typically not how these strategies are actually sold. Just because Chrissy Wellington or Mark Allen trained a certain way does not necessarily mean that that is a good idea for most age group athletes. If I trained like some of the pros these days, I think I would end up broken. So ultimately, the only people that I have ever seen become financially independent with life insurance are the people who are selling it. I am only one person, and I'm sure there are people out there, and I welcome those conversations. It has been said that life insurance is not bought, it is sold. There is a significant conflict of interest when people are selling life insurance like this. There are two easy ways to identify the magnitude of the conflict of interest. The first is ask the person selling the policy if they will sign a fiduciary oath statement. Are they going to be legally obligated to act in your best interest? Chances are that they will not sign the oath. Second piece, ask that person how much money they will receive in commission for selling you the policy as it's designed. Please be aware, this question will make them uncomfortable, but they should be able to tell you. As with most things, what you do is more important than what you know. So we're going to talk about a bit of homework for this episode. Think about your current risk management plan. Are there risks you are currently retaining that you would prefer to share or transfer if the costs were reasonable? If so, give it a look. And if you are ever approached by anyone promoting a bank-on-yourself or infinite banking type of structure, please ask a lot of questions or walk away. In our next educational episode, we are going to continue to improve your financial training plan and we are going to work on retirement income and cash flow at the long course level. Wait, what is that up ahead? It's the disclaimers and they're headed right for us. Please use one earbud at a time and be aware of your surroundings. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Money Mile is powered by Waller Financial Coaching, a California State Registered Investment Advisor. And all information here is for education purposes only and should not be considered financial, legal, tax, or even training advice. I believe this is accurate based on when we are recording, but things do change. It has been said that the tax law is written in pencil. Please consult your doctor and find out if Money Mile is right for you. I hope this has been a valuable investment of your time. Your life should be better because you join us here. If you work out, everything else will too. I look forward to talking to you next time on Money Mom.